G'day, I'm Rowan Barker, and this is The Silver Bullet. Pendula is a Sydney-based technology scale-up that is helping some of the country's biggest brands use AI and improve the way they talk with and retain their customers. Pendula's platform was built on an old idea that customer loyalty matters. With cost of living pressures, all of us are now taking a close look at the services we subscribe to and asking if they're worth the cost. Pendula has built the first ever generative AI-powered proactive retention platform. It helps brands such as Amazim, Mate Telecom, Bright, Peak Commerce, BizCover and Noble Oak change the way they communicate with customers and build trust. Recently, the company announced the completion of a $14.5 million capital raise, which will help take Pendula's technology global, with offices now open in London and Singapore. In this episode of The Silver Bullet, we'll be talking with the man in the driver's seat of Pendula's explosive growth since its inception in 2016, Alex Colvin. We'll talk about Pendula's mission, his expansion into overseas markets, his thoughts on what companies get wrong when it comes to communicating with customers, and what the future holds for the marketing industry with the advent of AI. Alex, welcome to the program. Good to be here, Matt. So you've worked in technology companies for many years now. What's your professional background and how did you get started? Uh, look, it's it's like most people in IT, right? You know, we uh, particularly those who aren't developers from you know, their, their, their trade. Um, my path was one that was you know, very well trodden. And I initially went in basically to management consulting when I finished uh, university. And, um, you know, th those consultancy businesses really have uh, two paths if you're not an order, and that is you either become an advisor in some way mm -hmm. or you start talking about solutioning and solutioning inevitably leads towards technology. So that was, that was really the, the key thing that drove me towards um, technology initially. Uh, you run a, you run enough cycles with the consulting businesses, and eventually you get drawn to the actual uh, the product development. Um, you know, there, there's a common thing that we see a lot with our product people, actually not just within our business, in, in most technology businesses, and that is the the real heart ache of a consultancy is that you only get to work on something for a short period, and then you're on to the next thing. Mm. Um, when you actually get into the technology companies, hey, or even start them yourselves. You get to work on one problem and really solve it in a in a way that evolves and you know I mean the, the interest and passion that I build from that really is the the drive that that led me to that and uh, why I'm still here today. Right. So so that's you've seen a gap in the market or a need for what is now Pendular, I guess. So tell me about Pendular, how it works, and how did you come up with the idea? I mean, look, Pendular, where it was six seven years ago when we first started the business, is very different to where it is today and. That, that's really a trend of uh, that most startups take. You know, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to pivot to the, mm -hmm. the noises in the uh, the market to what your customers want. Um, originally, we were a really basic solution. Um, really, all we did in the early days was um, solve basic communication problems. So that was, can you send an email? Can you send an SMS? And hey, if someone responds back to your SMS that you sent them, can you do something with that? Uh, now that was, you know, around 2016, 2017, SMS marketing, SMS engagement was just really starting to become more prevalent. Right. Um, it was relatively expensive to do that as well. Um, and if you were really looking at what most investment was pointing towards, it was 
you know, email optimization and like hyper-personalization. That was the kind of key drive. Mm -hmm. Now, what we saw was, was two things. The first thing was, if you look at the, you know, customer engagement market, and, you know, we really like to labor, label ourselves as a customer engagement platform. Uh, and it, it's really in the name, right? Engage the customers in a better way. Now, the, the key problems that we look to solve and, you know, really the value that we deliver to our customers uh, are solely around how you engage with your customers to drive some kind of outcome. Mm-hmm. Now, that outcome could be uh, loyalty. It could be uh, trying to upsell a product range that you've got, trying to cross-sell them on something. It could be just to acquire them in the first place. Now, when we started doing that journey, the, the first problem that you need to solve really is can you communicate? Send an email, send an SMS, send a WhatsApp, send a push. Everyone can really do that, right? It's table stakes, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, the pain point that we see come up time and time again, and talking to pretty much most of our customers and prospects, uh, is that the problem always starts with the data. So you'll have a, a marketing person sitting in a room saying, I've got a really good idea. I want to build some customer loyalty. I want to you know, try and run a campaign and convert some of our prospects or upsell some of our customers onto from the silver product to the gold product. And I know exactly what to do. So it could be, for instance, a telco. I want to upsell someone roaming. Well, all I need to know is as soon as they've landed in a foreign country, that they're going to be perfectly primed for this. So if I can get their usage feed that tells me, aha, Rowan's just landed in London. Well, let's go and offer Rowan that um, London roaming pack. But inevitably they end up in one one common circumstance and that is, oh, but we don't have access to that data, even though the business does. So really our whole platform and, and our positioning in the market is, yes, we have a very, very, you know, capable communication layer. We can do conversational messaging to seem more human and create really personalized experiences. But where we always start is the data, getting into these systems in a deep way that doesn't require IT and doesn't require the data teams to get involved. So that marketer sitting there wanting to run that campaign that you know their gut or their data is telling them to run uh, is possible. Uh, and that really lines back to what one of the key things that we've always driven on, on our mission, and that is to defy limits. And the limits that I refer to are the limitations that our customers now use as face. Um, normally that's something to do with accessing data or being able to do something without the assistance of, you know, the more technical people within the business. Okay. You, so it didn't start out as a customer loyalty play, but that's kind of where you've, the thing you've homed in on over these last seven years. Yeah. I mean, look, the, Loyalty is a very broad concept and it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I could speak for the next hour about loyalty. Um, but the, the, the key thing that we find is, you know, firstly, no one gets up in the morning and says, I want to send my customers a text message or a WhatsApp. Um, there's a reason behind it. Now, the two highest driving uh, metrics that a business has for its customers uh, irrelevant of loyalty, irrelevant of service, irrelevant of all of those things is, is my customer spending money with me and can they spend more? And how do I ensure they don't leave me? Mm-hmm. Now, under that problem is everything else. So when we first started, we were at the other end of that spectrum. We were, we were trying to solve how do you send a message? How do you send an email um, after our customer had already gone through that journey themselves to figure out that, 
yes, an SMS campaign is probably the best solution to that. So that's really where we started to focus on driving value to the customer. Hmm. You know, our, our sales guys don't go in there and sell features. Yeah. We, we understand our, our customers' problems, what they're trying to do. And that's where the focus is, right? It, it, it's great to have, it's great to have a, a, a nice, fast-looking car, but if you can't, uh, if you can't get in and drive it, it's it's not worth the, uh, it's not worth the the paint that it's that it's sitting on, right? It's yeah. um that that's kind of the key view there. Our loyalty is a big thing when you look at that. So mm-hmm. certainly, when we get closer to the value, loyalty permeates as a as a as a key um, thing that we're really focused on. So yeah, I mean yeah, you can absolutely say that the business has really shifted towards that, but that's with us following the value more or less to you know help the customers realize it. Yeah, you're a bit kind of further down the funnel, as it were, than perhaps you were initially thinking. Well, exactly right. I mean, people are, are looking for expertise, right? They, they don't just need something they can click on. And if we focus on those solutions, then we'll build that expertise. And our lessons that we learn, we can then, you know, guide our customers on and, you know, help give them judgment, help give them advice on how to best use these tools. Uh, instead of it just being, a, you know, give us your credit card and away you go. Yeah. Uh, that, that's just not our style. There's historically been a focus on acquiring new customers and still in the marketplace, you see a lot of the best deals are reserved for new customers instead of trying to retain customers when we know it costs a lot more to acquire a new customer than to retain an existing one. But do you think this is changing now with the sort of uncertainty in the business climate at the moment? Are businesses more focused on retaining their existing clients and, as you say, trying to upsell them? It's not as simple as just retaining your customers, right? At the end of the day, there there are some customers that you want to retain, and you know most companies will never say this, but um, the internal teams are always thinking it. There are some customers you don't want to retain, so the key focus here is is actually about retaining the right customers. Right customers yeah. Um, what does that do? It gives you better profitability. Um, it also ensures that your customer lifetime value that you're getting is uh, is maximised. Uh, it means that you've got less calls coming into the call centers. It means that you've got advocates out there actually hey, driving your acquisition channels uh, at the, at, you know, in that, in that self-fulfilling cycle. But the, the key thing that, you know, coming back down to those, those simple metrics of making sure you maximize your revenue and reduce, um, you know, your costs, keeping customers happy and ensuring they spend more is a lot cheaper and a lot more effective than trying to find new customers. Uh, that's something that a lot of businesses have kind of taken for granted. And the, the shift that's really happened that we're seeing create this type of behavior where retention really is the key is actually the commercial models and how they've changed. You know, you go back 50 years, subscription-like interactions with businesses was, you know, there were only a few companies that were offering those types of commercial models. Yeah, And what that meant was, Retaining customers was actually an acquisition activity because you had to sell them again and again and again. And you still see this in in lots of markets: people selling white goods, people selling cars, people selling um, you know even groceries. All of these acting they're still transactional. So how do you, if you're Toyota, for instance, how do you ensure you have retention? Well, the answer is acquisition. But the key thing that's changing now is you look at all these other services and how they're now creating these ongoing commercial relationships. That view of being able to sell 
retention via acquisition strategies is now becoming more and more redundant as time goes on. So it's, it's not really fair to say that retention is now becoming the focus. It's actually that the retention tactics that you deploy are now actually unique and are different to how you acquire customers. And as a result, they require different focus. And you know, naturally, when you've been playing an acquisition book to retain customers, you don't call it retention. Now that there's a separate technique, that's the key. Now we're calling it retention. And now businesses are, are, are almost separating their, their focal points when it comes to marketing, when it comes to support, to support that, that type of activity. So looking ahead and in the, the changing sort of modes and methods of customer service, uh, we're going to see a lot more AI. I presume Pendula has uh, an AI component to its product? I mean, look, AI, the term gets thrown around very broadly. Yeah, uh, yeah. what does it I actually mean? mean? Yeah, Exactly right. I mean, the, the amount of times that I've spoken to people and, and they've said, I need AI. And you go, okay, well, what kind of AI do you need? And normally when you get a few layers down, it gets a bit fuzzy. Um, at a high level pendulum, of course, we, we do have AI. We see um, some really strong applications of it. Um, really the way that we view AI is in two categories. Um, the first is machine learning. Uh, now, machine learning's best application really is to look at a broad group of people and try and attribute assumptions in what could happen in the future based on what has happened in the past. So, I mean, that's the simple technique. Now, certain use cases, that's very applicable for. If you, if you think about um, will people churn? Churn propensity is a great example where machine learning can be a really strong um, path to enabling, enabling, you know, a very valuable resource when you're marketing to someone. You know, don't go and upsell someone with an offer if you think they're about to churn. Focus on saving them is a classic example of where those types of, of models can be deployed really well. Um, on top of that, if you think about the conversational side of it, something that we use extensively in our platform is sentiment analysis. So when people are interacting with us, you know, we're, we're representing a customer, they're sending text messages or sending WhatsApps and the customer's responding back. Not only do we try and understand what they're talking about, but also to see how happy they are. So what is the language yeah. they're using? Are they, a, are they an advocate for our business or are they, are they looking like they're on shaky ground? Now that side there is the key for it is to keep the focus of the machine learning um, very pointed uh, and not to try and solve every problem with it. And the reason for that, and this is, I guess, the, the biggest leap that we've seen, and this is the next type of AI that, that's really appeared and is the hot topic at the moment, that's generative AI. Mm -hmm. Generative AI is the opposite of machine learning in that it enables you to focus on the individual instead of focusing on groups of people. So no longer are we saying, here's a group of people, this person looks like that group of people, okay, they all churned, well, this person's probably going to churn. Now the generative AI can actually assess this one individual as one person yeah. and really act in a way that is, you could call it hyper-personalized. Um, but the key thing that everyone's missing, and it's something that we've gone really deep in, is generative AI, yes, it can generate content. And that is probably the most basic use case and also the riskiest use case. Um, we don't normally advocate to our customers to enable the GenAI to generate the text messages that you're sending. Mm. Um, there's just too many things that can go wrong. 
Yeah, it's still not good at interpreting tone, is it? And, and, and perhaps it, never will be. It's not. I mean, you need to remember these models are trained off the internet and the yeah. internet, uh, whilst there is a lot of facts, facts on the internet, there's also a lot of... Uh, of what's the saying, fake news that's sitting out there. Yeah. There's also a yeah. lot of hate speech. Lots of and yeah. Exactly right. Now, these large language models, they're agnostic. They can't tell if they're reading a category that is, you know, anti-Semitic or racist or something like that, or if it's a factual thing in history about, you know, math- mathematics, for instance. And it's learning the same way on that. Now, we obviously have customer service agents on the other hand, that do know the difference between those two things. And when they interact with our customers, they, they choose to keep to facts and to understand what is socially acceptable. Um, so that, that's really where the generating content isn't yet really finessed. What you don't want to do is start treating one of your customers in a different way because the model has been trained on data that it really shouldn't have been trained on in the first place. So what that means is how do you use it? Yeah. And what we've found is the best way for generative AI to be used is actually as a robotic process automation tool. And going back to defined limits, we could ask a generative AI tool, for instance, for a telco to go and look up on the internet what the cheapest plan is available from our competitors, then understand how much of a discount we would have to give a customer in order to be the cheapest in market to save them. They, we thought they were going to churn. Then we could calculate the yield of that customer to understand if it's even commercially viable to offer them this mm-hmm. discount. And based on all of that, um, then make the offer. Now, previously, that would have been a very big engineering challenge of developing code and logic. Now, if a marketer can describe that process in plain English, which hey, is what they do in their marketing briefs, mm. now they can tell these systems to do that. And the power of that is just massive. Right, you've got the ability now for a marketer to really deploy their ideas in a way that generative AI can do processes at scale. And what I mean by that is you could have a telco customer base of 4 million people and then put every individual 4 million of those people through that generative AI process. And it will tell you based on each individual circumstance, if you could give them an offer or not, or what the offer would have to be. It's a really powerful and where that can go. And that's that's what's really got us most excited about how customer engagement is going to change from, you know, I guess, those broad categories of AIs. So everything's changing really quickly. Generative AI, it, you know, going to be the next big thing, as you say. How do you keep up with the rapid changes in the technology and 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 techniques and methods as you go forward? I mean, this is this is product management one hundred and one. We we need to want to understand what is available in market. We need to understand how it works. But more importantly, we need to understand how a customer would use it, what the value to them would be, and practically how it would actually work. Um, we're, we're seeing time and time again when we, when we go and talk to customers that they want something like generative AI. But when you actually scrape the surface and say, well, how do you want to use it? Normally, you encounter a land field, landmine field of, of, uh, of problems. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do is, is start small. We're going to crawl. We're going to understand what is available, but really what do we want to do and how do you stay ahead of the curve? It's, it's how you commercialize this effectively and make it a practical solution instead of a science project. Um, so that's really our key focus. What that means practically in our business is that we have our engineering teams, our product teams and our customer teams tied at the hip to really understand and make sure that feedback loop is spinning as efficiently as possible. 
Um, and that really results in a good product that is usable and actually delivers value. So, so you know, it's, it might sound simple, but really it's the, that's no. the key to any, uh, any good product being able to be deployed on the market. Yeah, everybody knows what everybody else is doing and why. I guess that's really important as well. So what that's about right. um, exactly right? Can can you give us some some examples, some of your success stories? How Pendula has helped businesses communicate better with their customers and and therefore lead to better retention rates and and better profits? Yeah, look, I mean, there's I mean, just across Australia, right? Every every utility business uses Pendula now. All the all the major players. Um, in the telco market, we we run about forty five percent of the entire market share is currently being engaged in some way or for, or form through Pendula. Seventy um, percent of the of the disability care market within Australia now is using Pendula in some way or form to interact with people. Um, some of the high level stats that we've realised uh, from a telco perspective, for instance, uh, when we try and do cross selling campaigns, for for instance, from mobile to MBN or MBN to mobile. Um, or upsell campaigns, we're seeing conversion rates on those flows you know, greater than twenty percent, which is exceptional. Yeah, wow. Um, some some of the tier one brands out there, um, you know, they've gone gone from these global behemoth marketing automation solutions that were only able to achieve you know five or six percent conversion, then plugging in a pendulum and immediately seeing that uptick. Um, now, what's our trick? Well, one is we're getting them, we're getting giving the marketers what they need so they can actually run the campaigns that they want to. Um, what does that mean? The marketers are no longer limited by the systems. They're limited by their own ideas, which is a much better place to find yourself in. Yeah. And then secondly, a really simple ta- technique that we use is conversational messaging. So card abandonment disappears. If I ask you if you'd like to upgrade via a text message, all you have to do is respond back, yes, I'd like to upgrade. And then you're done. You don't need to go to the portal. You don't need to log in. You don't need to call the call center. You know, it's a seamless experience for both our customers and their customers. And, yeah. you know, that, that's really where we're seeing the benefit, um, not only within those industries. You know, we really love the NDIS plays. Um, some of the great success stories we have there, one, it helps the businesses, but it also helps the individuals in the end of the day. And that is around using the government allowances. So you'll find that there's a natural human tendency to hoard things, um, in NDIS, you'll have someone who is eligible for benefits and rightly so, right? This is why we all pay tax, that we have a community that is supported in the right way. What happens though, is they'll be given an allocation or a budget every year to use and inevitably they'll get halfway through the year and they wouldn't have used half their budget. They may have only used 10%. Mm. So we're then trying to prompt these people and saying, hey, these are services that you could use. We're based on your history. You've done a physiotherapy session um, every month for the last six months, and you haven't done it for the last three, um, would you like to book in another one of those? Now, that helps the individual. It helps the business itself because they're then providing more services. And ultimately, it makes the actual system work better. Um, all we're doing is engaging, right? We're talking to customers like they talk to each other. It's a pretty simple concept, but when you throw scale at it, it becomes a, a fairly big logistical uh, problem for these companies to have to solve. So, you know, we're pretty proud of the results that we have achieved. And, you know, we're now finding ourselves as a, as a business who's operating um, within Australia, within Singapore, um, and now the UK. Uh, and, you know, the company's now running about 100 million messages per year through the platform, wow. um, which, you know, going back to our early days when we were high-fiving when the first message uh, was able to go out. Um, it's certainly a, um, a humble, humbling uh, place to find ourselves in. 
So you're making it, removing friction from transactions, making them slippery, effectively making it as easy as you can for people to say yes. That's right. And Ron, we define the limits here. That's the, that's the key thing. Get rid of those limits that's facing um, all these businesses today that um, they're just used to expecting is the norm and they don't have to deal with this pain. And you know that's something we get a lot of satisfaction out of showing people what actually is possible in today's world. And you plug into existing CRMs if that's what people are using? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, look at the end of the day, it comes down to the same problem. Connecting to systems is hard. Um, we've spent a lot of time investing in our infrastructure layers and our integration layers to make that a really easy process. Now, whether it's uploading a CSV, but all the way through to integrating to some of the biggest um, CRM platforms, CDP platforms in the world, you know, the Salesforce, the Dynamics, the HubSpots, the Snowflakes, the segments of the world, um, all of those platforms, all you need is your username and password and, you know, you're off to the races. Are there concerns around privacy as, as far as, you know, putting this sort of information out into, you know, into the ether, as it were? How do you address the concerns about customer security and, and uh, data privacy? I mean, look, security is something we take um, very, very seriously. Um, if, if I look at, you know, for instance, even our internal um, investment, about 15% of all of our costs that we have in our business every year are directed towards security in some way or form. Um, we're a business with 50 people in it that, you know, has um, a dedicated department focused on security. Uh, you know, we've recently been certified in ISO 27001, um, now, you know, a few months away from getting SOC 2, but also operating in other areas where we need to ensure that we also have, you know, legislated um, compliance to things like privacy. For instance, in the UK, we have GDPR. Um, in the US, there's the um, SMS process um, around how you can be focused on anti-spamming, um, HIPAA compliance. Uh, you know, in Singapore, we need to deal with, uh, again, anti-spam legislation. So, yeah. It's not actually really even an option for us, right? It is. It's. It's a. It's a, it's a, it's a core part of our business, yeah. and you know, it's. It's a foundation, right? It's, so it's something that we take very seriously, and it's going to continue to be something that will be, be, you know, really entrenched in our DNA till the end of of uh, of the business. Uh, and you know, that that's something. Hey, that our customers pay us for. That is the trust that we we uh, instill in them when they hand over their data into the system to enable these experiences to occur. It's obviously key fundamental to, to, to your ongoing success. And I know you've just completed a successful capital raise of 14.5 mil. Congrats on that. That's a pretty big achievement in Australia in the current business environment. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience talking to VCs and uh, other investors? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the business is one fortunate that we began in a market that is not like it is today. Um, and the reason that we're in a fortunate position is we have now seven years of history of the business and how we've been able to generate revenue and how we've been able to effectively deploy capital. Um, but really one of the fundamental things that drove us to a, a place of success and been able to raise um, so well over the last uh, you know, 12, 24 months, um, you know, that last capital round capped off the business with more than $25 million invested in the business, there's now four funds that are you know backing the the business. Three of them Australian based, one of them now internationally based. Um, and really, the thing that drove their attention to us was we never took a view of growth at all costs. We always had a 
a view that we would build a good business with good fundamentals. Uh, and that meant that there was always an eye on efficiency. So when you find yourself in an economic environment like we are in right now, the VCs and the private equity firms out there, they still have capital, right? Mm. It hasn't disappeared. Mm. Um, now, they still want to deploy it as well. That's their business. A venture capitalist's job is to invest. What they want to invest in, though, is businesses they know aren't going to be knocking on the door in six months' time saying, hey, we've spent all the money. Um, they want to know a business who understands some of the key efficiency metrics like the rule of 40 or the magic number, our CAC payback, the customer lifetime values that really underpin the health of you know, really the financial health of, of a business like ours. So when they are investing in it, it's not a punt. It's a, it's a really considered investment. Um, and they're, they're basing it on facts, which you know, ultimately that's what happens when you end up in an economic tightening cycle. Um, people care about businesses who are efficient and they can operate in a sustainable way. So, you know, VCs, that, would, that, that certainly appealed to them. But on top of that, and this is something that I've always really aligned to when raising capital, um, when we do capital rounds, we don't go and shop around to, you know, the 30 VCs that are, you know, knocking on our door. Mm. We build long relationships with our funds. Um, so this last round um, was led by Octopus Ventures um, out of the UK. Uh, and we've been speaking to Octopus for over two years now. Yeah. Um, actually, we've knocked them back on investing in us uh, once before when we initially a- allowed the MA Financial guys to invest in the business. Uh, now, that's important for two reasons. One is we want our investors to really feel comfortable with our business and know that they made the right decision. Um, we want to take care of our, investor- our investors as well. That's a really important thing for me personally. Uh, but ultimately, we're selling a part of our business to them. Mm. And when we do that, we want to make sure that they're aligned in how we want to run the business and aligned with where we want to get to. And the only way to do that is by building longer term relationships. So you know, that last round was something that, that had been in the works for you know 12 months mm. before that. And the relationship had already been existing for 12 months before that. Um, it would be a very hard environment right now to be operating in if you were if you didn't have as, as much history as our business has. Um, it's not impossible to raise capital right now, but it's certainly uh, the cycles where VCs were um, you know, in pursuit of endless growth at all costs uh, certainly have dissipated yeah. um, where they were you know, several, several years ago. Yeah. Do you think the risk appetite in Australia is better or worse than it was, say, three years ago? Australians' problem is not risk appetite. The problem with Australian funds is they value time more than ideas. Mm-hmm. You go overseas, ideas are valued significantly more than than time. What that means is it actually has primed Australian businesses to be much more successful in an environment where we are today because you can't just have a good idea in Australia to get funding. You need to have good fundamentals. Now, lots of businesses overseas didn't have those fundamentals. They just had a really really nice idea that um, people got excited about. And um, the cardinal rule that really exists now is not overcapitalizing businesses. Um, you give a young founder enough cash, he'll burn through it. Um, what you want to see is a, uh, a, a let's call it a, a more uh, progressive approach to funding where it is, here is some capital, achieve this goal, and there is some more after that, oh, if you achieve yeah. that. Um, so. Really, the view there, and I look at the funds that we're in, 
their risk appetite, their their view on investing hasn't really changed that much, particularly mm-hmm. at businesses at our stage. Um, it certainly has in the earlier stage investments that exist. Uh, really, the fundamental thing that has changed is the valuations. So if anything, the PCs are primed to getting more for less uh, than what happened before. But frankly, rightfully so. We need to be pegged to some um, methodology valuation. And if the public markets aren't uh, valuing technology companies as as aggressively as they used to, then it's reasonable that the private market should also yep. be commensurately um, downvalued. Yeah, that's the reality, right? Yeah. So one of the goals from your raise was to, you know, go global, as it were, and you've um, opening offices in the UK and Singapore. Is that uh, that's the latest update? Correct. So the, the offices are open. There's feet on the ground now as well. Right. Um, customers there as well, which is which is really 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 exciting to to see. Yeah. Um, What's the our working hours like? have changed? Uh, we're we're certainly uh, working a lot later at night with the UK time <laughs> hours than it, it was before. <laughs> What's the what's the competition like um, in those markets for for businesses like yours? Look, it's it's pretty similar to the Australian market. Mm-hmm. Um, the competitors that we have in Australia are the ones that um, they're global businesses. They're not from Australia, um, and they exist in those foreign markets. Uh, they've been there for longer than they have been in Australia. Normally, people are jumping into places like Europe before they, particularly if they're a northern hemisphere based company, they'll go to Europe before they'll come to um, Asia Pac. Mm. Um, look, the re- the reality is, is we truly believe that our product is a better offering for our customers, and as a result, it, it's a it's a better offer compared to our competitors' solutions that are sitting out there. They may have significant brand value beyond what we have. Um, you know, some of our competitors would spend more on marketing in a month than we would spend on running in our business in a year. Mm. Uh, but what we're really proud of is the results that we deliver, and something that you know, you can really back up with some of the fundamental metrics behind the business. I mean, churn is almost non-existent in our business. Right, um, right, we have right. really strong NRI metrics. And the reason for that is, you know, coming back to those lessons we learned in the early days, we're not just selling software, we're selling business value. And when there is value that is realized, then there is value to be traded on both sides of the fence. So f- fundamentally, whilst we certainly do have competitors and we love a good fight when we can get into one. Uh, it's a really similar um, selling cycle. Um, the messaging is almost identical uh, within Australia and Europe, for instance. Um, Asia, there are some nuances. Uh, really, the only fundamental difference between selling um, our solution in Australia compared to selling it in Europe is you don't sell as many um, engagement cycles through SMS in Europe. It's more WhatsApp focused, whereas mm-hmm. in Australia, just given the cultural preference, um, SMS is a much stronger channel in Australia. Um, other than that, very, very similar techniques. And, hey, we're a global global uh, country already, right? Um, the market is global and people have learned from each other. So it's, it's natural that um, the cycles are fairly similar here as they are overseas. So looking ahead... Are there some trends coming a couple of years down the track in terms of customer engagement and the technology that you might deploy? What should we be looking out for and, and, and what direction are you taking and how to position Pendula to, you know, to remain innovative and relevant down the track? Yeah, really good question. I mean, look, the reality is, is we're currently already going through the cycle where the old marketing technologies that were out there are now becoming tiresome. Um, very expensive to run, 
uh, and you know, marketing teams are demanding more. So they're already, there is a massive cycle happening right now where people are moving off legacy marketing automation solutions that have been in market for you know, 15, 20 years and now searching for the solutions that really address the pain points that existed. So the next several years is going to be focused on enabling marketers to do their jobs without technical help. Um, that's the big shift that's happening right now. Now, there's a lot of excitement and energy around the generative AI, generative AI capabilities that are out in, out in market right now. Um, whilst we will certainly see investment in those areas and there will be realized benefits, the real big wave on um, changing the norms in how people market to people probably is still three or four years away. Um, who's going to win this race of customer engagement? It's whoever gets um, the data right and the generative, a, generative AI and the personalization right. If you can nail those three, um, what you're going to be seeing is more personalized, more targeted, more considered, and deeper marketing campaigns than we've ever seen before. Uh, and the reality is, is if, our comp if your competitor has deployed technology like that, um, ultimately it's going to become an arms race. You won't be able to compete unless you have similar tech. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of hype around the Gen AI. I think it is correct, um, but there's still one step before that. Uh, you know, generative AI is only as good as the data that it has. Uh, so step one, let's get the data right. Work, that's a workflow integration um, and usability problem. Mm -hmm. Once that is done, it's going to prime everyone to really take advantage of this you know, significant innovation that's out in the market today. Um, how we're going to do that, we're going to continue to work with our customers, continue, continue to listen to them, um, but really stay strong to that mission that we have of ensuring that any of the limits that our marketing uh, users and customers have um, are defied. So technology potentially going to be increasingly important, but surely there are some bits of marketing that will never be automated. You are, as you said, it's about people marketing to people. So there's got to be people in there somewhere, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the key thing, what does a marketer actually do in its fundamental basis? I mean, we all remember our high school and university uh, marketing classes around the four P's, right? You know, we, we, Apparently there are they, they need to understand what... There's so many P's, right? But the fours are still a, <laughs> still a good, four when good position. Uni, that's for sure. But it's, it's, there's about 11 or exactly, 13 of them now. Exactly right. I mean, I guess they're, they're, they're a consolidation of them. And I, I'm sure there'll probably be a G in there as well for generative AI or something. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, that, what is a marketer's key job? Well, they care about product. That's a, a key key, key, key concept of that. Um, AI, machine learning, all this tech is never going to create a product for you. Um, if you're a telco, to understand the mix of data and voice and texting and the cost points and the honeymoon periods and you know the, the other ancillary bolt-ons, if it's content or if it is another service like um, internet or insurance, whatever it would be, that is always going to be a people-driven activity. Data can help inform it, mm. but the reality is marketers should be the ones really driving a lot of that product. Um, one, what the product is, but then secondly, how it is positioned in market. Obviously, our second P that's sitting there, yeah. um, that obviously also encompasses pricing. And then, you know, ultimately, what are these marketers going to be doing with all of these aspects? They're the ones who conceptualize and strategize how we're going to really drive the core goals of that business. Um, if that is revenue generation, if that is customer satisfaction, if it is trying to sell another product line, whatever it would be, um, 
they're the ones that are going to be creating those campaigns and they know what works. They know their customers. It's their job to do it, right? Um, what these tools are going to enable is them to take things to market quicker than they ever have been able to before in a more self-sufficient way. And in a way, you know, I like to look at things like generative AI machine learning is imagine you could have one marketer for every customer in your business and what you would do. Mm. That's what these tools can enable you to do. What's that? That's a limitation. And really, again, coming back to that defined limits concept, we can defy the limits of the marketers. That's going to be the areas that they're going to be focusing on, um, which is a significantly more valuable activity than you know, writing copy for an email. Alex, great to chat with you today. Thank you very much for your time. Congratulations on your success up to this point and may it continue long into the future. Ron, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the chat. 